Hello, this is Pastor Matthew. I just want to take a moment personally to say thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. Our mission is to impact the valley and bless the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We encourage you to go check out our website at crosslinkva.com. By doing so, you can learn all about the ministries of Crosslink and how we're involved in the community. Please know we're praying for you. God bless you. I want to ask you today, if you have your Bibles, to open them with me to the New Testament book of Acts, to Acts chapter 2 for this morning's message and for our time together uh, here today. As you remember, last week we had our fall kickoff, our fall launch, and we were reminded of our calling as a church to impact the valley and to bless the nations with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is our mission here at Crosslink. We, we truly desire and strive to impact the valley here in the Harrisonburg, Rockingham County, Shenandoah Valley area, but also to bless the nations with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is our mission. But then the question ultimately becomes, but how do we do that? How do we get there? How do we impact this valley with the gospel? And how do we take that message and bless the nations, even to the ends of the earth? How can we accomplish that here at Crosslink Community Church in 2019 and beyond? Well, I'm glad you've asked the question this morning because we're going to begin looking today, today and over the next three weeks that the Lord allows, we're going to begin studying some specific passages of scripture from the book of Acts. I believe as we study the book of Acts, we see that God was working in an extraordinary way in that day. And I'm not suggesting today that we need to go back into desire and be praying for everything that happened on the day of Pentecost necessarily, but we begin seeing in Acts chapter 2, as the day of Pentecost unfolds, God begins working and moving in an extraordinary way, and he continues to do so in the chapters that follow there in the early church. And I'm convinced of this. The same God that was moving in the book of Acts is the same God who's still moving today. The same God that was alive and working through the gospel message that the apostles were preaching in the book of Acts is the same God who is alive and active and working and speaking through the gospel even still today. The same God who saved souls and changed lives in incredibly uh, difficult situations in the book of Acts is still saving souls and changing lives today. Amen? And so this morning, as we look to God's word and we really begin to answer that question of, well, how are we going to impact the valley and bless the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ? I'm going to ask you over the next few weeks to make a commitment in four areas of your life. In fact, this morning, I would ask you by way of question, uh, this simple statement. And it's something I want to ask you to really reflect on today and in the coming weeks. And that simple question is this, in your life, who and what are you committed to? In your life, who and what are you committed to? The fact of the matter is this morning, we live in a culture where we don't like to commit to anything. Uh, we just simply don't. Oftentimes, we determine that we have too many things going on. We've got too many irons in the fire. There's all sorts of distractions and things in our life, and therefore, we don't want to commit. Sometimes we fail to commit to various things because, frankly, we like to keep our schedule open so that if something better comes along, we can say yes to that and not have to opt out of something else that we have committed to. And we will use all sorts of explanations for that. Well, we're busy, we're distracted, life's full, you know, the kids and all these other things. But really the matter is not one of busyness or distractions. It really is a matter of priorities. What is important to you? What are the things in your life that mattered? Who or what are you committed to? Now, even though we live in a culture where we don't like to have commitment, the fact of the matter is 
We do value commitment. And frankly, we need commitment in order for things in our life to progress and to grow. We need commitment and we understand the need for it even though we don't like it. For example, an athlete will show up as football season has begun, for example, an athlete will show up in the summertime to, to practice and to prepare. But an, well, a good athlete, a very successful athlete, doesn't show up for the first practice of the spring or the first practice of the fall, show up, get a few good ideas, and then leave the field and look at the coach and say, coach, I got what I need. I'll see you when the season begins. No, an athlete doesn't do that. Why? Because an athlete knows if they're going to excel, if they're going to have success, if they're going to be at their best, they need to have commitment. They need to discipline themselves. They need to follow through and to give it their best day in and day out, week in and week out. And the coach, when it comes time for the season, he can tell who's done the work and who hasn't, can't he? I'm reminded of the same as I think about commitment. I think about uh, being on a diet. Anybody ever been on a diet before? I've been on a diet before. I remember not too long ago. In fact, it was just uh, about 18 months ago or so. I, I determined that I needed to lose some weight because my doctor looked at me and said, you're going to die. You got to lose some weight. And so that's a good motivation. And so I determined I needed to go on a diet. And so I did really good. I mean, I, I ate the carrots and I ate the celery and I ate the salad for like 36 hours. It was great. <laughs> and then I, I couldn't take it anymore. I washed it down with two Big Macs and a milkshake. And I determined in that moment, if I'm going to do this well... I got to be committed to it, right? I mean, I got to see this through. It's not just the, when you're in the doctor's office and you're saying you got to do this that you commit to. No, it's a daily commitment. We understand that in relationships, right? I mean, it, I remember those days when I was dating Miss Heather, and then I remember in that process of, of determining that she is the woman that God has for me, and, and I remember saving up and buying the ring and proposing to her. When I proposed to her, I didn't look at her and say, sweetheart, I love you. I think you're the one for me. Will you marry me? By the way, I'm going to be busy in my master's degree and my education for the next five years. I want to propose now, and we'll get married in six or seven years. That's not what I did. Why? Because I was committed to her. And so what I said to her was, will you marry me? I want to love you. I want to take care of you. I want to spend as much time as I can with you. And I want to spend the rest of my life showing you that, right? We understand the need for commitment. And I believe what God is calling us to in the book of Acts is he's calling us to a place of commitment. Commitment in four specific areas. Now, I think it stands to reason this morning if we are going to commit ourselves to Christ, that also means that if we commit ourselves to Christ, we also are going to have a love and a passion and a commitment to the things that he is committed to. Does that make sense? The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ is the Lord and Savior over all. Many of us would say, absolutely, right? Jesus came to this earth. He lived a sinless life. He died on the cross for your sins and for mine, and he rose again according to the Scripture. Jesus is Lord of all. The Scripture makes it abundantly clear. The difference between someone who would just say, yeah, Jesus is the Lord, and someone who would say, Jesus is my Lord, is that the believer would look and say, I recognize that Jesus is Lord over all, and I put my faith in him to be my Lord and my Savior. Many of us profess that. But the truth of the matter is, if Jesus is truly our Lord and Savior, because we love him, because we are devoted to him, because he is the ruler of our life, then the things that matter to him will matter to us. The things that he is committed to we will be committed to. The things that he sacrifices for, we will sacrifice for. Because if we truly love Jesus as our Lord, it will demonstrate itself by us having the same commitment, the same devotion, and the same passion. I was reminded of that not too long ago as my 
wife was looking at me. We were sitting there in the living room of our house with the Wellborns who were gathered here. Many of you remember the Wellborns were here just a few weeks ago. Pastor John and his family, the former pastor of our church, and, and uh, they were with us in the living room. We were having a time of fellowship, and we were enjoying a sacred Saturday together of watching college football. And as, as, as we were watching college football, it just so happened to be that Mac and Manny, my two boys, and myself, we were in the living room in our Alabama gear, and Pastor John and Charlie and Eli were there in their Georgia Bulldog gear. And, and, and you would think that they weren't even playing each other, but, but as we were sitting there kind of eating and talking, we began to quickly realize we were kind of friendly trash-talking each other, okay? And, and, and my, my, my wife pulled me aside, and she said, what have you created? I said, what do you mean? She said, what are you? She, I said, what are you talking about? She said, look at these boys. Like you have brainwashed our boys. Look at the way they're cheering for Alabama. Like they're trash talking Pastor John's kids. This isn't good. They're our guests. You know, like look at what you've done. And I, and I looked at her and I said, well, what, what do you want them to do? Cheer for Tennessee? I mean, come on, right? Right? Then, of course, I joked with her and teased a little bit. I said, listen, I, I, didn't, I didn't brainwash them. It just so happens to be that most of their life, Alabama's good, and they've seen me cheering for them, and they've seen my commitment, and they've seen my, my enjoyment, and as a result, they've just kind of naturally pulled for the best team in the country. But anyway, the fact of the matter is we joke about that and laugh, but the truth of the matter is if we truly love Jesus, if we're spending time with Jesus, if Jesus is our Lord, then the things that are important to him will be important to us. So what is, what is important to Jesus? Listen to what the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. It says, that God says this word about Christ. It says, be imitators of God as beloved children. Now, most of us stop right there because we, we sing the song, I am who you say I am. I am chosen. I'm forgiven. Yes, I'm a child of God. Hallelujah. Listen to the next statement. And walk in love just as Christ also loved you. And what did he do? He gave himself up. For us, that's the idea, us, the church, us, the body of Christ, us, those who believed in Jesus. He gave himself up for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Listen to how devoted and committed Christ is to the church. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25, Paul brings us to a climactic moment where he would look at every husband and he would say, so husbands, love your wives. Ladies, that's a great place to say amen, Okay. Love your wives as Christ loved who? The church and gave himself up for her. In other words, Christ's love for the church is not measured in emotions and measured in feelings, but instead it is demonstrated through faithful acts of service and devotion. The fact of the matter is this morning, if Jesus Christ loved the church so much that he was literally willing to give his life for her, then why should I, as a follower of Jesus, be willing to give anything less? If Jesus is my Lord and he willingly gave his life for the glory of the Father and for the good of the church, then surely in my life I should be willing to give whatever he would call me to give for his glory and for the good of his bride, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what does that commitment look like? I believe we begin in Acts chapter 2 with a commitment to experience Jesus. A commitment to experience Jesus. I want to ask you this morning, if you're able to stand to your feet, would you stand to your feet for the reading of God's word in Acts chapter 2? Now, this morning, the text that we're going to cover covers 
completely 42 verses of scripture. That's a lot of verses. So for our time together, I'm gonna simplify that and move around to a few different verses to give us a big picture of what God is doing as these Jews who are gathered together in Jerusalem have a a, a powerful, life-changing, soul-saving experience with the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts chapter two, beginning in verse one, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as a fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, better word translated there would be staying in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. When this sound occurred, The crowd, key phrase, came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya, beyond Cyrene and visitors of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Christians and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues, listen to this statement, speaking of the mighty deeds of God. They continued in amazement and great perplexity saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, ah, they're just drunk. They're full of sweet wine. Verse 14, but Peter taking his stand with the 11, raised his voice and declared to them, men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. It is nine o'clock in the morning. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. Skip down to verse 21. And it shall be, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be what? Saved. Men of Israel, he says, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. Just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Move on down to verse 32. This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this, this Holy Spirit, which you now both see and hear. Verse 36. Therefore, Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. 
So then those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Let's pray together. Father, we do love you and we thank you for this morning and the time that we have together today. Lord, I thank you that we have not come to talk about the weather. We've not come to talk about politics. We haven't come to talk about sports. We didn't come to hear any man's opinion. God, we came to hear from you. We came to praise your name. We came, Father, to hear your word. And so, God, I pray that our eyes would be open to see the things that you want us to see. God, may our ears be open to hear the things that you want us to hear. And God, I pray that our hearts would be open to respond in faith and to respond in complete obedience to your leading today. We pray it all for Jesus' name's sake and for his glory. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated this morning. Experiencing Jesus. As we know this morning, the gospel message of gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell us about the life of Christ. They tell us about what happened when Jesus walked on this earth, the miracles that he performed, how, how he died on the cross for our sins, how he rose again from the grave. And then from there, we go into the book of Acts. Of course, we understand this today as the Acts of the Apostles. And we begin to think about the life of the early church and how God was working and moving in and through the life of the Apostles. But the fact of the matter is when you begin to study the book of Acts, it is far more than just the story of what God was doing in and through the select few, these chosen ones called the apostles. It's also the story of what God was doing through everyday normal people who put their faith in Jesus Christ and committed to follow him. In fact, we begin to see in Acts chapter 2 a very powerful event taking place as God is working and moving in normal, common, ordinary people who hear his word and respond in faith. I believe wholeheartedly this morning there are some things about this early church that God wants us to see that will encourage us this morning. But also if we will commit to these things in our own life today, God can use it in powerful ways to strengthen us in our faith, but ultimately to point others to him as well. So what are those four things this morning? I wanted just to make four observations from the text from Acts chapter 2 as we look at the early church here in this pastor scripture. Now, I have a disclosure to make, and that disclosure is the points don't all start with the same letter, okay? So if you have a certain standard, get over it, let it go, all right? God can still speak through his word, amen? amen. Four things that took place. Number one, and this sounds so simple, and yet it is, it's practical, and yet at the same time, it's powerful, and that is this. They came together. The early church often and consistently, regularly came together. This is something that they were committed to. It's very interesting to me that in Acts chapter 1, we understand that Jesus has died. He's risen from the grave. He is standing there at the mountain, and he's commissioning them. He is saying, you will receive power when the Holy Ghost comes upon you, and you'll be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. And after Jesus says this, the Bible says that Jesus ascends into heaven. And as he ascends into heaven, literally the disciples and those that were gathered together, they stand there in amazement. They're in awe of what is taking place. At the same time, they're perplexed at what is happening. And at that moment, the Bible says that the angel of the Lord spoke to them and said, you men of Galilee, why do you stand here astonished? Why do you stand here surprised? This same Jesus that's ascending into heaven, he is going to come again one day. And I believe in that moment, they began to re remember all the things that Jesus had told them. 
Jesus had told them that one day he would be leaving them. Jesus had told them that after he rose again from the grave, he would ascend to heaven where he would be seated at the right hand of the Father. Jesus told them in John 14 and John 16 that when I'm seated at the right hand of the Father, the Father's gonna send another helper, a comforter. The Holy Spirit will come. And so what did they do? The Bible tells us in Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, that they left that place and they went back to Jerusalem and they gathered together there in the upper room. They gathered in that upper room. The Bible says specifically in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, they were there with one mind, continually devoting themselves to prayer. In other words, the early church came together, and they came together for the purpose of prayer. They came together for the purpose of seeking God. They came together for the purpose of reminding each other and encouraging each other with the truths that they had heard from Jesus, with the promise that the Holy Spirit was coming. They came together. In Acts chapter 2, we begin our text this morning with the day of Pentecost. Pentecost was a Jewish celebration. It was a time of of Jewish uh, feast, if you will. It was a time where the Jews came together to worship God. The name Pentecost literally in the Greek means 50. This day of Pentecost was celebrated 50 days literally after the celebration and the observance of Passover. You can go back and study all the Jewish feasts and all the Jewish customs of the day, but what that tells us this morning is is that when this happens on the day of Pentecost, it is the first day of the week, which is of some significance. Here are the Jews. They have gathered together in Jerusalem. They, the, God, the apostles have been in the upper room. They have been praying for a number of days. And now the day of Pentecost has come. And the Bible says once again, they were all together in where? One place. Now, we don't know exactly where this place was. Some will debate, well, maybe this is, they're still in the upper room. In fact, the next verse here says the word house. But the same word that's used as house in verse 2 is used in Acts chapter 4 is describing a common, ordinary place. I personally believe, and this is simply an opinion at this point, but I personally believe that when they were gathered on the day of Pentecost, they were likely gathered somewhere in the temple. The temples in that day had many hallways and many corridors. There were numerous places that a group of about 120 followers of Jesus could have easily gathered. Why would they be there? They would be there because at that moment of Pentecost, literally Jews from every nation under heaven had made a long journey, a long pilgrimage to get to Jerusalem. They were all going to the temple to worship. They were all going in this this festival of harvest, if you will, to to bring their first fruits to God, to honor God, to, to recognize God's faithfulness, God's promise that he would bring a harvest and the harvest would be greater than they could imagine. They came to worship God. And of course, these apostles would be in the same place. They were Jews. And so I believe they're gathering here at the temple and they're worshiping God and they're praising God. Why? Because when they came together, they came with a conviction. They came with a conviction that Jesus is who he says he is. They came with a conviction. They knew that Jesus had lived among them. They saw the miracles he had done. They knew that Jesus had died on the cross. They knew that Jesus had risen from the grave. They had just spent time with him for 40 days prior to this moment. And I believe in this moment, they have a conviction that Jesus is who he says he is. They have a conviction to praise God for the work that he's done, that he's provided a savior, but also to praise God for what he's going to do. Now, I'm not suggesting to us this morning that they knew that the Holy Spirit was about to come. They didn't know when it was going to happen. 
They didn't know how it was going to happen. They didn't know the evidences that were going to happen, but they came to this place to worship. They came together with an intentionality, with a conviction of praising God. I want to remind us this morning that even today in 2019, and as long as God gives us life and breath, coming together as a body of believers is such an important thing for us this morning. We need it, but I believe wholeheartedly it brings glory and it brings honor to God. The Bible says it this way in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 through 25. Let us, church, let us, believers, consider how to stimulate one another towards love and good deeds. Well, how do we do that? We do that in this way. By not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Someone say, oh, but it's not that important to, to be in a place of worship on Sunday mornings. Oh, it's not that. It's inconvenient. There's a million other things that could be going on. Yes, there are a lot of other things. I'm sure that Satan will give you plenty of opportunities and excuses. But here's the reality. The early church was gathered together with a priority, with an intentionality. We're going to come together. We're going to worship God. We're going to pray, and we're going to praise his name together. Never doubt or never question the significance of what God can do when a body of believers comes together unified for the purpose of glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what's happening here in the early church. They're gathered together. That's the foundation for everything that would take place in the times that would follow. We see that the believers came together in conviction. But when then we learn together that there's also another group that comes together in this moment, and that is who I'm going to call the unbelievers. They came together, but not for the purpose with conviction to worship God. They came together, frankly, in curiosity. Now, now somebody would say, well, pastor, these are not unbelievers. These people believe in God. That's true. But they did not believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Fact of the matter is this morning, there are many faiths and many religions who will say that they believe in God. Frankly, there are many that will also say that they believe that Jesus was a prophet and was a good man, that he was a moral person and someone worth studying who lived a life worth emulating. But the thing that separates Christianity from those other religions is that we recognize Jesus was not just a prophet and he was not just the son of God, but that he was, in fact, God in flesh, that he alone is the savior of the world. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. The Bible tells us that there were these Jews who were gathered together under every nation, from every nation under heaven. I'm calling them unbelievers not because they didn't believe in God, but because they didn't believe in Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world. They believed in God. Frankly, they were like many in our culture today, maybe like many even here today. They believed that God was good. They believed that God is their father, and they were religious. In fact, they made great sacrifices to get to Jerusalem. They came bringing literally offerings and bringing the first of their harvest, and they came to sacrifice to God and to honor God. They even came to the temple for the purpose of prayer. They were moral. They were religious. They had a certain appearance about them. I mean, they had all the rules and all the laws and all the do's and all the don'ts, but they had not believed in Jesus to be their Lord and Savior. The unbelievers came out of curiosity. The Bible tells us, 
in verses two through four, that as the believers, the apostles were gathered together and as they were praying, as they were fellowshipping, as they were worshiping, the Holy Spirit came. In fact, the Bible says suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. Now, I don't know about you, but I've been in a few storms before where the wind got pretty bad pretty quick. Anybody ever been there before? This past summer, my family and I had the opportunity to be at the beach, and there was one specific day where, man, the wind just got brutal. And we were like, no, today is not a day at the beach because we saw the waves, and it was scary. Really? Well, in fact, we learned later, a week later, that there was a gentleman that had died that very day on the beach as a result of the wind and the waves. When the fact of the matter is, the Bible says a violent rushing wind came, and that violent rushing wind came rushing in. It filled the whole place that they were gathered together, and there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves. They rested on each of the apostles. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. And suddenly, the Bible says in verse 6, that when this sound occurred, all the Jews that had gathered in Jerusalem, where were they at? They're all going to the temple. Why? Because it's the day of Pentecost. It's a Jewish feast. It's a day of worshiping God. And so here they are. Suddenly they hear this and the Bible says, and the crowd came together. It's interesting how even unbelievers will come to be curious, to discern, what is this about this God? What is this about this church? What is this about this people? What's going on in this moment? It's interesting to notice that even the unbelievers knew exactly where to go. They came rushing in. The believers came in conviction, but the unbelievers came in curiosity. They wanted to know what was going on. The Bible makes it clear that they looked in, in perplexity and they said, why is this happening? Aren't these people Galileans? Now that doesn't mean a lot to us in 2019, but in that day, people often looked down upon the Galileans. They were uneducated, untrained. They weren't very professional, weren't very, very intelligent in their eyes. I don't know about you, but I think it's often true even in our culture today we often have various stereotypes based upon the state that you come from. You know what I'm talking about? I remember when I was a senior in high school, God had opened a door. I'd been preaching already. God opened a door to go to Georgia to preach. And I remember going to that church to preach and the youth pastor introduced me and he said, this is Matthew Kirkland. He's from Alabama, right? Even the way he said it, he was kind of implying that people from Alabama, you know, we were a few fries short of a Happy Meal kind of thing, you know? And I stood up knowing this youth pastor's background. And I said, what does that say for you? You are from Mississippi. Come on, man. I mean, what's the deal? We often have these stereotypes. They're looking at, these guys are Galileans. How could this be happening? How could they speak from all these languages? There were Jews from every nation under heaven. And literally, we've already seen some of the people and some of the backgrounds, some of the language that we've spoken. And they're looking at this, this is impossible. How can these uneducated, untrained people be speaking in the perfect language, in the perfect dialect? How can they be articulating these things? It's humanly impossible. And yet the Bible says in this moment, they had come together in curiosity. He said, Pastor, what are you saying? Please understand, I am not suggesting you today as a church that we are to be seeking the supernatural phenomenon of what happened, the supernatural miraculous working of the Holy Spirit that happened in Acts chapter two. But here's what I am saying. When we come together, for the purpose of prayer, for the purpose of honoring God. When we come together for the purpose of making known the mighty deeds of God, God still today works and moves in a powerful way. 
The disciples approached that meeting place and they approached that with an attitude of anticipation, with an attitude of hunger. God, would you work? God, would you move? God, would you speak to me? God, would you fill me? God, would you use me? And I'm telling you this morning, even in 2019 and beyond, when we come together with a hunger and a thirst for God, God, would you move among us? God, would you speak to hearts and lives? God, would you save souls and change lives? God, I'm not gonna miss this. I'm not gonna let this be an inconvenience. God, I'm here to meet with you when we come with that type of expectation. God still moves in a powerful way even today. They were committed to coming together and God showed up in a powerful way. Secondly, they heard in their coming together, they heard the mighty deeds of God. The Bible says in verse, uh, verse eight, Verse eight, they begin to question, how is it that we have hear, heard them in our own language in which we were born? And then he gives us this whole speaking of what? Of the mighty deeds of God. Now, now I believe what is likely happening in this moment is that the apostles were gathered together in this place. They're praying together. They're reminding each other of the words of Christ, the lessons that he taught them, the moments they had with them. And as they're doing so, they began to praise God aloud. They're sharing with each other the mighty things that God had done among them. And man, were there some mighty deeds God had done among them. I mean, go read through the gospel sometime this week. I mean, just, just read a handful of chapters if you want to. When you begin to read the things that God is doing among them, it was incredible. And here they are talking about it. They're praising God for his goodness and for his faithfulness. They're praising God for his provision. They're praising God for the ways that their eyes were open, their lives were changed. They're praising God for his mighty deeds. And the Bible says that the unbelievers that were there could hear these praises in their own language. It's interesting to note that the word mighty deeds literally in the Greek can be translated in the English, great things. It's interesting, we've been singing about that a lot lately. I preached about that earlier in the year and plan to preach about it again in the coming weeks. But the reality is they were looking and saying, look at the great things that God has done in and through our lives. Look at what God has done for us. Let me ask you a question this morning. Has God done some great things in your life? I mean, I mean, really, has God done some great things in your life? I'm reminded of Mary. The Bible tells us after she recognized that the, the child within her was going to be the, the savior of the world, and after she appeared before Elizabeth and John leaped in her womb, the Bible says that Mary burst into song, and she began to praise God, and she began to praise him for the great things he had done. Here in this moment, we see the, the church, we see the disciples of Jesus praising God for the great things. Man, I'm telling you, God's done some great things. If you can look back over your life and you can recognize times that God has taken care of you and God has provided for you, you know that God's done some great things in your life. If you can look back in times and situations and you can recognize some moments when, when it completely defied logical explanation that God protected you and he saw you through a storm and he saw you through a season that you thought you'd never get to the end of, you know that God's done some great things for you. If you've dealt with relationships that have been broken and have been shattered with no hope and thought of, of any type of restoration and healing, and yet God brought you through those, those horrible times to a place of, of healing and deliverance and, and discovering of his grace, you know God's done some great things for you. 
But I guarantee you this morning, if you can look in your life and remember where you were without Christ, and you remember the sin that you were caught in, and you remember the shame that you felt in that moment, you remember the darkness, and you remember the sadness that were associated, and yet you came to the place where you realized that Jesus alone is the Lord and Savior, and you confess and said, God, forgive me. God, would you save me? And you experienced the joy of being made a new creation, the joy of being set free from your sin. If you've been forgiven of your sins, you know God's done some great things in your life. When we recognize the greatness of what God has done in our life, frankly, we can't stay silent about it. And so what's happening is the church is praising God for the great things that he has done. And as they celebrate and give God praise, the Bible tells us that that the Jews that were gathered together were perplexed. What does this mean? There has to be a reason for all this. We've never seen this before. There, there's no explanation for what's happening here. And while some were perplexed and wanted to know more, just like in our day today, there were some that wrote it all off. Look at these guys. They're quacks, man. They're, they must be drunk. How, how are they speaking in our language? This is ridiculous. They, 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 they must be intoxicated. That's crazy. That's foolish talk. And in that moment, Peter stands and he begins to explain the truth to those Jews that were gathered together. Now, now, one of the greatest evidences of the power of the gospel to change someone's life is by looking at the example of the life of Peter. This is the same man who just weeks earlier, when Jesus was taken into custody, he ran in fear and ran in shame, afraid that he would suffer persecution like Jesus himself was being crucified. And then on this day, now that the Holy Spirit had come, now that Peter's life had been radically transformed, Peter stands with boldness and conviction and begins to explain with clarity the mighty deeds that God had done. He tells them three things, and I believe there are three things that the, that the unbelievers heard that day. And frankly, please hear me, if you're here this morning and you know Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior, these are three things that every unbeliever in our life needs to hear from us. Number one, they heard who Jesus was. They heard who Jesus was. Verses 21 through 22, Peter looks at them and he says, no, 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 no. He starts off by describing the prophet Joel. He says, now guys, don't you remember the prophet Joel? Don't you remember he spoke hundreds of years before Jesus? Don't you accept his words? And they said, oh yes, we accept his words. Well, don't you remember the prophet Joel talked one day about a Holy Spirit that would come and a Holy Spirit would lead men and a Holy Spirit would convict men and a Holy Spirit. And what Joel spoke about, this is what's happening right now. And by the way, don't you remember that Joel spoke about a Messiah, a Savior, someone who would come to rescue and redeem the people? Don't you remember that? And they would say, oh, yes, we, we need that Savior. We're still looking for that Messiah, Messiah. We're still looking for that Savior to come. Now that Peter has set the stage, Peter then looks at them in verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, Peter would describe, he is the Savior. Peter explained very, very clearly to them who Jesus really was, that Jesus truly is the Lord, the Savior, the Messiah that they had long looked for. In fact, he points them to an evidence of that. He says, now here's the evidence. I want you to think for just a moment, guys. Do you remember the miracles 
and the signs and the wonders that he performed. Do you remember those? Because it is in those miracles, it is in those acts, it is in those works that he proved to every single one of us here. He proved he is who he says he is. He is God in flesh. He's the savior of the world and he is the long awaited Messiah. In fact, Peter would look at them and say, guys, you yourselves know this. Jesus' miracles weren't done in private to where they'd be questioned and doubted and debated. Jesus' miracles weren't, weren't some hidden knowledge. No, they were common knowledge of the day. Peter could literally look at them and say, don't you remember? Don't you remember when we were there at the pool of Bethsaida? Don't you remember when the lame man was there and Jesus asked him why he was sitting there and he said, oh, I need someone to, to take me and to put me in the healing waters. And Jesus looked at him and said, I say to you, rise up and walk. Don't you remember how the man got up, he rolled up his bed, and he went walking home that day? Peter would say, don't you remember the blind man that came to Jesus, and Jesus spat in the ground and took the mud, and he put it on his eyes and told him to go wash, and the Bible said he was instantly healed, his eyes were open. He could, don't you remember? Don't you remember the young lady that had died, and Jesus said, oh, she's not dead, she's just asleep. Don't you remember laughing at him that day? Don't you remember thinking he was crazy? But five minutes later, he walked out of the room and here she was alive asking for something to eat. Don't you remember the mighty miracles that Jesus... Don't you remember that day? All those thousands of people were gathered on the mountainside and Jesus was teaching and y'all were distracted because you were so hungry waiting for McDonald's that day. Don't you remember... And Jesus was looking for something and he found out, we found a little boy that had some loaves and some fish. Don't you remember how Jesus blessed it and he broke it and he fed thousands that day and sent us home with 12 baskets full? Don't you remember? Don't you remember the miracles? So often in our life, we get caught up and distracted and busy that we lose sight of and forget the many miracles that God has worked in our life. The many times that God has worked in a supernatural way to show his presence and his grace and his mercy in our life. We're so focused on, on the problems of today and the, the concerns and the uncertainties of tomorrow that we often lose sight of the many things he's done to prove it himself. Here in this moment, Peter begins to stand and speak to them and he's saying, listen, all of these miracles that have happened, don't forget them because they happened for a reason. So many were the miracles of Jesus that John concludes his gospel by saying this, Literally, and I quote, there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, John, the disciple, says this, I suppose even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. His miracles all point to who he is. That's why Jesus would say in John 5, verse 36, the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. They heard who Jesus was. Secondly, they heard what Jesus had done. They heard what Jesus had done. Verses 23 through 24, listen to Peter. Think of this for a moment. Peter is addressing Many of the people that were in the crowd that day, when Jesus was standing before Pilate, he's addressing many of the same people that were crying out, crucify him. What do you say to the guys who were just 50 days ago saying, crucify him? Listen to what Peter says. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, 
You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to shame, put him to death. God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. They heard who Jesus was, that he's the savior of the world, but they also heard what Jesus had done, that Jesus had died on the cross for their sins and ultimately for ours. I love how the scripture says it was by the predetermined plan of God. Please understand this morning that Christ's death on the cross was not just merely an afterthought. God in eternity past knew our sinful state. God in eternity past knew in our will that we would rebel against him and go our own way. And yet God in his grace and his mercy still made a way for us to be saved. God the Father understood and knew that in order for us sinners for us and our brokenness to be healed and to be reconciled and to be restored to him. That someone perfect would have to come and give his life as a sacrifice, as a substitute in our place. There was a price and there was a punishment, there was a cost, there was a consequence of our sin. And when that cost needed to be paid, Jesus willingly and humbly gave his life for you and for me. And what Peter's wanting them to see is, it's not just, guys, that, that you killed Jesus, that you crucified Jesus. This was all a part of the Father's plan. God the Father did this. God the Father allowed this. God the Father planned this so that you could know him, so that you could be forgiven, so that you could be made new. It's interesting to note that 600 years before the birth of Christ, God speaks through the prophet Isaiah. And God speaks through Isaiah, and here's what Isaiah saw as God was giving him direction. Listen to these words of description 600 years before Jesus would even come to this earth. Here's what he says. He would look ahead through the ages and he would say, he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs, by the way, that's yours and that's mine. Our griefs he himself bore. Our sorrows, that's yours and that's mine. He carried them all to the cross. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions. That's yours and that's mine. He was crushed for our iniquities. That's yours and that's mine. The chastening of our well-being, that's yours and that's mine. It all fell upon him and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Please make no mistake about it. Peter wanted them to understand loud and clear that when Jesus died on the cross, he wasn't merely dying for the apostles and just for that small band that was following him at the moment. Jesus died on the cross for the sins of all the world. He died on the cross for your sins. He died on the cross for mine. People in your life that you're having a hard time with now, the people that are hard to love, yeah, Jesus died for them too. Oh, but they talk differently. They act differently. They, they, oh, you don't know that neighbor. That neighbor is so contentious. I don't know them, but God does. And Jesus gave his life for them. So Peter explained what Jesus had done, but ultimately he explained why Jesus had come, 
What did this all mean? He tells us in verse 36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. There is a reason for it all. And that reason is so that you will believe and that you will be saved, that you will be rescued. Yes, you, the very ones who crucified Jesus, Jesus came so that you can be forgiven and be saved. One writer of yesteryear said it this way, Jesus went to the cross for us to pay a debt that he didn't owe so that we could receive a gift that we could never earn. That's why Jesus came. I got to move quickly. Thirdly, what's the next thing we see? The next thing we see is this. We see their response. When we come together to worship the Lord Jesus Christ, to make known his deeds, when we come together and together here at Crossling, you're going to hear the gospel. What happens when we gather together, when the gospel is preached, when we're honoring the Lord, when we're praying and seeking him, Here's the third thing we see is we see their response, and that is that they believed in Jesus and repented of their sins. Notice what the scripture says, verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Now stop for just a moment. I think it is so important to point out the fact that these individuals did not argue with Peter. Remember, many of the people in this crowd were people that were there in the crowd 50 days earlier when Jesus was standing before Pilate and they were part of the crowd chanting, crucify him, crucify him. He's a liar. He's a blasphemer. There's nothing good within him. He speaks of the devil. He speaks all sorts of lies. Crucify him. That's what he deserves. Now that Peter's preached and they've heard the gospel, Now that the Holy Spirit is working in their lives and opening their eyes, they don't argue whether or not they were miracles. They knew they were. They didn't argue whether or not Jesus died on the cross. They knew he did. They didn't argue their own involvement. They knew they were a part of it. They remembered being in the crowd chanting crucify him. They didn't argue whether Jesus had risen from the grave. They were already hearing the reports and they were seeing the evidences here in this moment of the Holy Spirit. They didn't argue whether or not that was the Holy Spirit that was working in that moment. Here's the only thing they wanted to know. They accepted the message. They believed what Peter was saying. So they asked this question, what must we do? You're right, Peter. We know. We know that he's the son of God. We know that he's the savior. We see that now. You're right, Peter. We, we have been. We're sinners. We are godless men. We recognize that we were in darkness when we crucified him, when we spat upon his face, when we had him beaten with a cat of nine tails. We know, Peter. We've done it. What can we do now? Many of us today are in the same place. They couldn't go back and change the past. Neither can we. They can't go back now and change the things they had done, the sins they'd committed, the false things they'd believed, the way their eyes were blind. They couldn't go back and change that, and we can't go back and change it either. I can't change the sins that I've committed. I can't go back to those those moments and those situations and undo the decisions that I've already made. They come basically pleading for grace. What can we do? How can we be right with God? 
Peter, is there any hope for us? Look at what we've done. Religion would say to them, well, start doing all these good works and hopefully it'll work out for you in the end. Well, start going to church and start having all these laws and rules and start doing this within your culture and you'll feel a lot better about yourself. That's not what Peter said. It's about being right with God. So God in his grace and mercy spoke through Peter and he said this, two things. Peter said to them, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. First thing to do, repent. The idea of repentance is literally, it's a change of mind. It's a change of course. It's a change of direction. The idea of repentance is Peter's looking at them and saying, listen, I know you've been religious. I know you've been coming to the temple. You came all the way to Jerusalem for the purpose of worshiping God, but you rejected his own son. You rejected the savior of the world. And so you need to repent. You literally need to have to turn from your sin and to turn from your self-righteous religion. You need to turn from your, your, your ideas of what it means to please God. And you need to recognize God has sent his son to be the savior of the world. So turn from your sin and turn from your ways and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Love Jesus. Put your faith in him, live for him, turn from those things and turn to the Lord. Repent, that's what he's saying. But then he says, secondly, and be baptized. Now, Peter's not here preaching that we can be saved by baptism. Baptism is just an outward act, but the simple reality is, is Peter's calling them to recognize you must believe in Jesus and having believed in Jesus, then you demonstrate that outwardly by being baptized. Somebody say, well, I, man, I don't, I'd be embarrassed if I'm baptized. What do people think? That's what people think. They will celebrate with you. Repent and be baptized. If faith is present, if you believe, then you have already been forgiven and you have been saved. And now the outward demonstration of that is to follow the Lord in baptism. Jesus said it this way in John 20, verse 31. These things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. The moment you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are forgiven and you are saved. And now we simply demonstrate that through baptism. Last thing I want you to see, and we'll be closing here. Final thing I want you to see is this. What's the next step? They repented. They believed. The Bible tells us, verse 41, and those who had received his word were baptized, and that day were added about 3,000 souls. Can you imagine the sight? 3,000 souls. Being saved in one day. Verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. We're, we're going to unpack that a whole lot more next Sunday. But here's what it means. It means that they committed themselves to the cause of Christ. In this context, they committed themselves to the church. Here they are, loving Jesus, believing in him, following him. And in following him, what did they commit to do? They continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Remember I said to you a moment ago, it's very interesting to note that it was on this day of Pentecost, the first day of the week, that they had gathered together to worship. Why is that so important? Because it was the first day of the week that Jesus had risen from the grave. And all throughout the New Testament, we're going to see it through the book of Acts. We're going to see it in Corinthians later on. We find again, on the first day of the week, they came together. These Jews that had gathered from every nation under heaven, on this day, they heard the gospel message. They were convicted of their sin. 
They repented of their sin and believed in Jesus, and they were saved and changed. And guess what they did? They, from that point forward, committed themselves to coming together as a body, to fellowship, to break bread, to prayer, to study the apostles' teaching. Why? Because they continually wanted to experience Jesus, and they wanted others to do the same. No wonder, when there's a body of Christ that's unified for the glory of God and the good of his church, no wonder God moved the way that he did. When we are hungry to see God move amongst us, when we come with a spirit of anticipation and a hunger to learn from the Lord, to seek him and to experience him in our life, it's amazing how God shows up, how he moves, how he convicts, but ultimately how he changes our life for his glory. My question for you this morning is very, very simple. Very simple. This morning, have you ever experienced Jesus? These Jews were individuals who had gathered together. They had heard all about Jesus. They had heard about all of his miracles. Many of them had even seen his miracles and had heard his teachings. Whatever reason, they blinded their eyes, they hardened their hearts, they rejected it over and over again. But it was in this moment, on this day, that they experienced the truth of who Jesus is and their lives were changed because of it. This morning, I simply ask you, have you experienced Jesus and do you know without a doubt that he's your Lord and your Savior? And if you never have and you don't know that with certainty, today you can by simply accepting Christ as your Savior and I pray that you will. And then secondly, this morning, if you have experienced Jesus and you know that he's your Lord and Savior, my hope and prayer today is that as a body of believers that you will commit, that you will commit as a part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ to continue to come together, to worship him, to praise him, to make known his mighty acts so that God works in us and through us to draw people to himself. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and praise you. We ask you to have your way right now as we close the service, as we consider how you'd have us to respond. Help us, Lord, now to respond in faith, I pray in Jesus' name. Thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. We encourage you to come and join us right here on our campus. We're located right next to the county fairgrounds here in Harrisonburg, Virginia. If you have any questions about the church, any question about the message, feel free to email us or call us and let us know. And we look forward to seeing you soon. God bless you.